0: Hi, this is Steve Thompson, and today we'll be reading together Genesis chapter 19. But I think I should issue a content advisory at this point. Both the chapter and my thoughts will deal with things of a sexual nature. So if you listen to these with your kids like I do, then you may be in for some quality conversation afterward that you may have wished to have mentally prepared for ahead of time. So here we go. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom, Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. He welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh no, they replied, we'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted. So at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone, for they are my guests and are under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he's acting like he's our judge? We'll treat you far worse than those men. And they lunged toward Lot to break down the door. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot, Do you have any other relatives living here in the city? Get them out of this place, your sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else, for we are about to destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great, it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot... Rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, the angels seized his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, Run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Oh no, my lord, Lot begged. You've been so gracious to me and saved my life. And you've shown such great kindness, but I cannot go to the mountains. Disaster would catch up to me there and I would soon die. See, there's a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. All right, the angel said, I will grant your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. This explains why that village was known as Zoar, which means little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him and she turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. Afterward, Lot left Zoar because he was afraid of the people there, and he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day, the older daughter said to the sister, There are no men left anywhere in this entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine, and then we will have sex with him. That way, we will preserve our family line through our father." So that night, they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. The next morning, the older daughter said to her sister, I had sex with her father last night, let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and you go in and have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. So that night, they got him drunk with wine again, and the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him, as before, he was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Ben-Ami. He became the ancestor of the nation known as the Ammonites. First off, you. Secondly, I feel like it's time to talk about sex. There's already been a handful of mentions of it in Genesis, both the good and the bad, and the weirdly somehow acceptable at the time. This pattern will continue. But in this chapter, we get two gruesome accounts, a potential gang rape of some visitors that no one but the readers evidently know are angels, and a couple of young women whose fiancés had just died in a fantastic display of fire and smoke, decide to rape their father for seemingly noble purposes, or at least the good of their family line. Neither of these accounts are good, not to the readers of that day, nor obviously for us today. Lot is trying to discourage the men of the town from something that they all recognized as evil behavior. The men of the town just didn't care. People were giving themselves over to doing whatever they wanted, and evil was having its way with people. It's worth noting that our English translations have Lot offering up his daughters as a twisted compromise to a dangerous situation, but the Hebrew is tricky here, and one commentator suggests that Lot was warning the men off by saying that what they were wanting to do was akin to taking his own daughters and brutalizing them. This would make a bit better sense of their prickly response of, who made you judge over us? Because they felt chastised and somehow judged by what Lot had said. But moving on, these young ladies later on then rationalized that they were doing something noble in preserving the family line. But even though we're centuries away from Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai, and we do have this tremendous value of passing along the family line, we do have law codes from that day that prohibited incest. Plus, the girls had to get their dad drunk meaning they already knew he was going to resist that, this idea as some kind of solution to their problem. Neither of these situations really had much to do with sex as something to be chosen, mutually engaged in, or an expression of desire or love. With Lot's family, it was a means to an end. With the men of Sodom, it seemed more like a jailhouse power play that's somehow supposed to establish a dominance hierarchy or something. But it was certainly and horrifically the opposite of what was expected in a culture that so highly prizes and esteems and values hospitality to strangers, like what Lot was showing. And while in our culture's history, the term sodomy has come to be equated with the homosexual act, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah had far less to do with same-sex sex and far more to do with violence and depravity and hedonism, a commitment to just do whatever you wanted, no matter how it affected other people. So these were sinful, wrong, evil things being done. We can recognize that now, and they likely recognize that then, and yet these stories of sexually out-of-bound acts keep happening, and not always with a clear word of judgment against them from the narrator. But what was true for their culture then is equally true for our culture now. Just because it's normal doesn't make it right. As we reflect on our God-given sexuality, I think it's important to acknowledge that if we were created by a God who loves us and wants what is best for us, and if that creator revealed a consistent sexual ethic, a how-to-best-use-this-gift-manual, then I think we can safely assume that he's not steering us wrong, but actually helping us clue into enjoying sex in the best possible way imaginable. If he's a good loving father, then he's not just toying with his kids by refusing to let them have dessert until after they eat all their vegetables because he gets some kind of sordid kick out of jerking around with them and withholding things that are perfectly good and acceptable just because he likes to be controlling. That's not it. But here's where scripture as a whole stands with sexual ethics and therefore is God's best practices advice. Sex is absolutely the best and most fantastic when practiced within the context of marriage between a husband and wife. Anything outside of that is damaging and less than God's best. So monogamy within marriage, celibacy outside of marriage, that's God's guidance. God's standard, God's best for us. That said, who among us have settled for less than God's best? Based on my experience, I'm going to safely assume every one of us, all of us, even our kids, we are all sexually broken. Before you get derailed by that comment, let me just point to a statement that Jesus made. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. My translation of that? We've all messed up. Men, women, kids old enough to have been shaped by media to think of another person sexually or objectified in any way? We're all so desperately in need of God's grace and renewal of mind and heart and soul when it comes to our sexuality. This is one of those areas that where it's so tempting to compare ourselves and to imagine ourselves at least not doing that, or thinking that, or being oriented that way. But there's no winning that game. Jesus won't let us get close to playing that game. We're all broken and desperately in need of God's healing grace being in a marriage where sex is too infrequent used as a bargaining tool or is just plain bad is settling for far far less than god's intended design we are a spouse with wounds in need of healing being sexually active with people we love but are not married to is not just another socially acceptable way of doing things We are humans longing for fulfilling connection and belonging and yet unable to hear or believe that God is offering so much more. Being addicted to pornography isn't just a global epidemic. We are people in need of hearing Jesus speak healing and freedom to enter true intimacy with a living person. Being LGBTQ is not a political or social issue. We are people in need of hearing Jesus's invitation to his table and to speak grace over our lives. To borrow a rhetorical argument from Paul in his letter to the Romans. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in his baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may have and live new lives. We cling to to God's abundant, overwhelming, completely inexhaustible grace, his self-giving love and acceptance. And we aspire to live by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving our bodies and our sexuality to Jesus because of all he has done for us as a living and holy sacrifice, and offering of worship, not copying the behavior and customs of this world, but letting God transform our minds and us into new people by changing the way we think. Jesus, we cry out to you. Every one of us has regrets. We have shame. We have deep and unfulfilled longings that we're tempted to meet in ways that are far less than your ideal. Would you heal us? Would you rescue and redeem us? Would you show us your path into freedom and wholeness and life and even great sex? We can't thank you enough for your promises and your desire to give us all of these things and more. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. All right, I'm going to sign off, but if you have any questions or you want to talk about this passage or some of the things I brought up, feel free to email me or hit me up on Facebook. Have a great day.